Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Rob. In case you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here, and it's uh, my privilege to open up God's Word with you. Um, just a couple of things to tell you about before we get in the sermon. First is uh, I've been struck by the bubonic plague sometimes last week. So if you hear me hacking through the sermon, and let's just say, let's just be honest, it's going to sound yucky and all those good things. Uh, this chest cold settled in, and it's somewhere in the tubes of you know the lungs, and there's nothing I can do about it. So we'll get through it together, won't we? And uh, when you see me in the hallway, instead of coming up and shaking my hand, you can just yell unclean and uh, <laughs> stay away from me. Another thing to make you aware of, this will be our last sermon in the book of Genesis for a while. So we're going to get out of the book of Genesis uh, for my sake, more than anybody else's. And uh, we're going to pick up in a series that I'm calling The Mothers of Jesus. Uh, Harry Fletcher and myself will be covering women in the line of the coming expectation of the Messiah. So we'll begin next week by taking a look at the life of Rahab. And uh, I got to tell you, Harry called me last week and he said, look, I want to be able to preach on Bathsheba. Now, he's going to get up and say to you next Sunday, or two Sundays from now, Rob said I have to preach on Bathsheba. But I got to tell you, Harry loves preaching scandal. He loves the intrigue of it. He loves the spice and the flair. He says it just preaches with a little more grit. So then, after Harry preaches Bathsheba, we'll take a look at the life of Ruth, and it will all culminate into Christmas Eve service as we consider the mother of our Lord, Mary, who, of course, had the privilege of bringing the Savior into the world, and that is why we can know him. So praise God for the work that he has done. Uh, we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. I remember it was the summer of 2007, spring, summer, sometime around there, that I had had my life greatly slow down. I was running at a pretty fast clip, 110 miles per hour, uh, all day, every day. I remember that I had scheduled my life so strictly that for a three-month period, I had scheduled to where there was only four hours of sleep per night. And then God just brought something into my life that slowed me down. I was working for the company U-Haul. I was an assistant manager, or maybe you think an assistant to the manager. You decide. Um, and while I was doing this job, one of the jobs that we would do is we would clear trailers from the parking lot. So one of my friends and I, Zirkel, and uh, if you want to think of someone that fits the stereotype of how you think that name sounds, Zirkel is just that person. We were moving this trailer down a decline over a curb, and when the wheel of the trailer dropped off of the curb, force took over. The tongue of the trailer dropped, and it hit me. It obliterated my pinky toe. That's right, my pinky toe. It was so bad that when I walked into the ER, the ER doctor took the first look at the injury and just said, gross. 
you know something's bad when the doctor says that. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself, pinky toe, big deal. If I'm going to injure something, I might as well, you know, injure my pinky toe. What good is a pinky toe? And, and generally, I agree with your thought there, but I was quite surprised that this pinky toe injury took me off of my feet for close to a month. You know, injuries have a way of doing that. They slow us down. Uh, we're running life at a frantic, frenetic pace, then suddenly this injury comes into our world, and now we realize that we have all kinds of time on our hand that we didn't even know existed. So much time that we learn how many ceiling tiles there are up above us. So much time that we realize that another movie is just going to turn our brain into more mush. We say that we're going to pray more, but three minutes later, we're back to counting the ceiling tiles again. I'll tell you, as I went through this injury, I learned a couple of lessons. One of the big lessons was, as I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs, Katie was out bringing home the bacon. And I said to myself, I could get used to this. <laughs> but the big lesson that I learned was that slowdowns aren't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, they can be instructive. As we move into Genesis 32, Jacob, too, will sustain an injury. Only this injury is given to him by God. Indeed, his injury will come with lifelong consequences. Jacob will leave this day with a limp. He'll never be the same man again. So the question is, is how did he sustain the injury? And the real question is, is why did God give him this injury? We'll pick that up in our story, Genesis 32. Now remember what has taken place. Jacob has left the tyranny of Laban. He's come down the 550 miles or so from Haran, and he's making his way into the promised land. He's now at this place <coughs> between the Jabbok River, um, which is just east of the Jordan River, and he's getting ready to cross over into the promised land. That dot there, Mahanaim, is where Jacob is at this time. So the story picks up with Jacob having an experience with God where God removes the veil from his eyes for just a moment. Verse 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim means two camps. Jacob here at the Jabbok River sees that there are two camps. There is his camp and there is God's camp. You have to understand the mind of the man as he's walking into the promised land. There are certain fears and expectations that he's carrying with him. He looks at his camp and he notices how insufficient this camp is for the problem that he faces. But as he looks at the camp of God, he realizes that God's camp is all-sufficient. There are myriads of myriads of angels. Not only is this uh, host of angelic army numerous, but he sees the raw power that is involved here. It's as if God is saying to Jacob, look at the armies that I have at my disposal. See their power and might. I promised you at Bethel that I would bring you back into this land. And Jacob, there is not a military force on this planet that can prevent me from keeping my promise to you. Jacob looks and he exclaims, this is God's camp. 
What if um, we saw that there were two camps? What if we had the spiritual veil removed from our eyes for just a moment and we saw that God surrounded us with spiritual angels who God has put in place to provide protection and to carry out his purposes and to keep his promises in this world. Now, if we struggle with that notion of this idea of two camps, I believe that it has something to do with the fact that we here in Western culture have what is called a materialistic worldview. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to go out and spend a lot of money for Christmas. You probably will. But what it means is that we interact with the world with our senses, and we've come to believe that only that which we can experience in a personal way is real. But I got to tell you, friends, this morning when you allowed God to invade your worldview by putting your faith in him, by believing in him, you said no to materialism. You see, the God of the universe, if you believe in a God who could create everything with his spoken word, bring it into existence, well, then you also have to believe in a God that can create a spiritual reality that is powerful, that is at work, that carries out his purposes, accomplishes his will. You see, in the book of 2 Kings, we read an account where the prophet Elisha prayed for God to open the eyes of his servant who was terrified. There was this great colossal military force just outside of the city, and they're coming for Elisha. Elisha prays, and he asks God to open the eyes of the servant so that the servant can see reality. Listen to the story. When the servant of the man rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Friends, that is reality. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Just imagine the confidence and strength and certainty we'd feel in this spiritual life if for a moment we realize that that spiritual veil blocks out all the things that God's doing in our world. But the problem is we're sight, taste, touch, sound, uh, smell-bound creatures with short memories. And so we'll see as the story moves on that Jacob starts succumbing to fears in certain ways. He begins off on a good foot. Verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants, and I have sent them to my Lord in order that I might find favor in his sight. Now, I want you to look at verse 3 there at the name Esau, and if you have a little room in your Bible, just write the words unfinished business next to Esau's name. Unfinished business. 
20 years prior, Jacob had offended his brother. He swindled him out of his birthright, his blessing. And the treachery had created this deep rift between the brothers, so much so that Esau now hated his brother and he wanted him dead. Indeed, that's why Jacob fled in the first place. I don't know about you, but unfinished business is something that I think most of us in the room know something about. There's probably someone somewhere in your life that you would just rather not run into. Uh, Their name comes up in conversation, your Facebook stalking. Uh, They walk by in the shopping mall or the grocery store. You see them, and there's a little bit of a tinge of shame that rises up in your heart because you know that something has occurred Something has happened where you have wronged them. And that tinge feels stronger when it's someone like a family member or a friend or that hurt that has occurred has been deep in nature. You see, I think that making things right for Jacob was a heart necessity. I don't think that he had to pass by Esau. When you look at the map there of the the promised land, You'll notice there that Edom is far south, and that's where Esau is at the time, and Jacob would be far north, and he could have easily glossed over the situation. You see what I'm saying here? But I don't think that the promised land for Jacob would have felt like the promised land if he didn't make things right with Esau. Now look at how peacefully Jacob approaches his brother. When he tells his servant to go talk to his brother, he says of himself, I am your servant. He says of Esau, you are my Lord. Some commentators suggest that he's giving up too much in this speech, that he's giving away his birthright that God has promised to him. But I don't think that that is what Jacob is doing in this passage. I think that he's coming back to his brother as a humbled man. Essentially in those words saying, you know, I fought you tooth and nail. I wanted your birthright for all the wrong reasons, but now I'm coming back to you humble and I'm saying, you get to be the older brother. I'll be the younger brother. I'd rather have your relationship than your title. Esau's response to the message sends the patriarch into a tailspin. Look there at verse 6. (coughs) And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Did you get that? 400. Like the size of a small army. The size of a militia. Uh, Is he coming in to escort his brother into the promised land? Is he coming in to just show him all the ways that God's blessed him over the years? Or is he going to swoop in and slaughter the entire camp, taking all of the good things away from him? Esau gives him no words. Jacob does not read that as a sign of glad tidings or that his brother wants forgiveness and reconciliation. What can you do? 
If you go backward, you're breaking the non-aggression treaty with Laban. If you go forward, you're running into a militia. There's war either way you go. So what does Jacob do? Well, he trusts God, kind of. You see, we see here in this text that not only is there war all around Jacob, there is also war within Jacob. He takes two steps that seem contradictory to one another when it comes to the life of faith. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now that's the old Jacob. That's the schemer, the master planner. I can make this work, Jacob. If Esau comes and harms this part of the family, well then this part of the family can get away. But unlike the old Jacob, he also does something new that demonstrates that God's still working on his character. He prays. Look at verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan. And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers of, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitudes. Now that doesn't sound like the old Jacob, does it? Have you ever had the privilege and pleasure of listening to someone in a group setting pray aloud for the first time. It's a beautiful sound. Now that person sitting in the room says to themselves, well, I know how everyone's going to think about me. They're going to think that I don't know how to pray very well. They feel intimidated. And, uh, you know, they don't know how to throw in the Lord God's at just the right moment to make the Holy Spirit come into the room like other people. But I'll tell you, when they pray, it's raw, it's genuine, it's real. It's a heart connecting with the Heavenly Father, maybe for the first time. And that's what I sense here as we look at Jacob's prayer, the prayers from the heart. Remember, we noted last week that he comes to the place where the patriarchs meet their wives and he doesn't ask God for his help. Doesn't say a word. Nothing. But now... We read the first recorded prayer of Jacob, and it's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. Indeed, as you go back and look at this passage in the week, I want you to take a look at this prayer more because it's a model prayer. Take a look at some of the ways that Jacob acknowledges God in prayer. <coughs> first, he brings adoration. You notice there in verse 10, he talks of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's talking about attributes of God that he's seen God demonstrate over the 20 years that he walked with him in Haran. Confession, verse 10, I am unworthy. 
think those were important words for Jacob to say. Important words for us to say. Admitting fear. I am afraid of Esau. Do you admit your fears to God? Do you come to him and tell him what's been heavy on your heart, what you're scared of? I gotta tell you, just as I was studying this passage this week, I felt convicted over this. There was certain fears that I have been carrying in my heart, and for whatever reason in my prayer life, I've never offered them up to God. But I saw this, and I said, you know what? I need to tell him. Why do we do that? Maybe we're afraid that our faith isn't strong enough if we tell God that we're afraid of something. Do you think he doesn't know? He knows what you're afraid of. And he's the only place where you can actually bring your fear, and he's the only one who can actually take care of it for you. You can't take care of it, but he can. He brings a petition before God. God, I need you to show up in this situation. I need you to take care of it. And he brings (coughs) that petition before God in light of the fact that he's claiming a promise of God. God, I can claim this or ask you to do this because you have said this. Friends, go take a look at that prayer. And you'll notice, and maybe you felt this struggle with Jacob, that he is in this great contradictory space. You, You see that again in verses 13 to 21. He creates a plan to appease Esau by giving him a king's reward. He offers up 550 animals. He's still scheming, but he's praying. He's trying to make it happen, but he's asking God for his help. And this dichotomy within Jacob tells us that God is still unfinished in the man. But he's still intent on changing the man. And he goes about changing him in the most unusual way. The story picks up in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children across the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Now this again is the type of thing that a man does when he has significant fears. You do not cross the ford of a river in the middle of the night if you are not scared, right? It's not the safest time to do this passage. So Jacob sends them across the river, and he goes back to the camp, and that's when it happened. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. He goes back to the camp in this unknown form emerges out of the darkness and assaulted him. Now remember the kind of man that Jacob was. He is not a weak, scrawny man. He went to a well and moved a stone that requires four men to move it. I mean, he worked with Laban in hard labor for 20 years. We're talking Jean Valjean, Les Miserables type of strength here. And he's gone and met someone that is his equal in a wrestling match. I imagine a violent match. Fists flying, legs kicking, teeth snarling, hands grip flesh, looking to tear. Dust scatters, his body's thrown to the ground. Back and forth they go for almost six hours through the night. I don't know if you've ever wrestled before, but five minutes feels like an hour. Six hours of this contest takes place between these men. 
Jacob won't give up an inch, nor is he willing to surrender an inch. Finally, at the first rays of light, as the sun crests over the horizon, the text tells us when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Interestingly enough, the touch in the Hebrew is a light touch. Just touches his hip, and the hip falls out of socket. What kind of man are you wrestling with if they can just touch you and your hip falls out of socket? The recognition seems to dawn upon Jacob's mind, and I think that's an important question for any one of us to ask ourselves, who is this man that Jacob's wrestling with in the middle of the night? Many people have different understandings of who this could be. Some believe that maybe it was Laban coming back on that non-aggression treaty back in the camp to wrestle him. Others think that it might be Esau coming in the dark of night to have it out with his brother fully and finally. Some get a little more metaphorical and they say, oh, this is a big contest of uh, Jacob's own internal struggle and he's wrestling himself through the night. But no, friends, I believe that Jacob's foe is much deadlier than Laban or Esau or Jacob himself. I believe that Jacob's foe is God. You see in the text in verse 30, Jacob comes to this understanding and he says, for I have seen uh, God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Can you imagine that thought as it dawns upon you? I have wrestled with this unknown character for six hours and when the sun came up, I realized it was God. And I walked away with my life. You see, this wrestling match between Jacob and God is a living parable of his life, and I want to submit to you a living parable of our lives, too. He's been running from God. He's been back and forth with God. But most of all, Jacob's been wrestling God. He's never fully understood what it means to live harmoniously with God. And friends, i got to tell you, the life of faith is not meant to be an endless wrestling match. You and God. You've got God up against the ropes, then he nearly pins you down back and forth. You're wrestling. What does wrestling look like? Well, it looks like the life of Jacob. You want the blessing of God, but you don't really care to have God. You want to structure your life in such a way where there's pockets of time where God's involved, but there's pockets of time that are your own personal space. Wrestling with God looks like saying, God, I give you halfway control of my life. You can steer things, but I want one hand on the steering wheel with you at the same time. And he's the type of opponent that will go to the distance with you. It will be a long, dark night. And with God, there will be no tag team partners Notice that the text says that he finds Jacob all alone. Naked you come into the world. Naked you leave the world. Naked you will face God when he is ready to rumble. You cannot tag in possessions. 
nor friends, nor family, nor career, nor education, nor natural talent. It will just be you and God. And the longer you heart the fight, the, the harder that you fight, eventually at some point, God intervenes in the situation and he provides you with a grace injury. A grace injury. When Jacob would not give up, God reached in and he zapped away his physical strength, disjointed his hip. He would sustain a lifelong injury. He was broken by God. Now, Middle Eastern shepherds, they do this practice of breaking bones, and it's a very sorrowful process to them in some of their sheep. As they're shepherding these flocks, they'll notice from time to time that there's a sheep that gets wanderlust. It never seems to want to stay with the rest of the flock. It tends to go off and do its own thing. So after a series of trials to get the sheep to learn to stay with the flock, eventually the shepherd says, enough's enough. They break a bone. And the healing process is quite interesting the shepherd will actually take the sheep and place the sheep over their neck and over the next couple of weeks they will be with that sheep in an intimate, personal way. It can't walk itself around. And as they go through this process, the sheep around the shepherd's neck learns to trust the shepherd so that when the bone heals, the sheep learns to stay with the flock. Now, why is it important that the shepherd do that? Why not just let the sheep wander? It's dangerous. There's bears and lions and other predators that would gladly devour that sheep. There are thieves that would steal that sheep away from the flock and never bring it back. Or maybe that sheep would wander too far for too long away from the flock and not be able to find its way back. So it gets a grace injury. The shepherd wants to preserve the sheep, keep the sheep close. You know, these grace injuries happen in all kinds of different ways. God's not interested, I just want you to understand this, in watching you suffer as you go through this. He's interested in bringing you closer to him, but he will sustain or give us these injuries so that we learn how to stay near to him. A grace injury might be involved in our marriage. Our marriage is on the rocks and we're asking ourselves, why is God taking us through this? And it's because God wants you to learn how to include him in your marriage and put him in it. Or maybe it's a financial hardship that you've been going through. And God's lesson that he wants you to learn is, trust me with your money. I know for Kimo and I, we both have lived with chronic illnesses. It's something that God gave us, we believe, earlier in our life. And one of the purposes of that was to teach us to rely on him more. God reaches out and he touches that hip socket to get us to take the weight off of whatever we've been relying on and to put the full weight of our body upon him. It's when we are injured that we realize that God is not our opponent. He is actually our ally, fighting us for us. 
In the final verses of this chapter, we watch Jacob undergo this finishing process. He truly begins to understand how his relationship with God must work. Look at the text at verse 26 through verse 30. It continues, Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, What is it, or why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, I want you to look at the process of change that Jacob goes through in these verses. Uh, First, in verse 26, we get this idea that Jacob is no longer wrestling God, but now he is clinging to God. He's holding on for dear life. The man says, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, a statement like that could go in one of two ways, depending on the attitude of the person, right? If it's a statement of dominance, I will not let you go, God, unless you bless me. Well, boy, you're still in the wrestling match. But if it is a cry of a man who has come to the end of himself, that's a much different story. In Hebrews 12, or Hosea 12.4, it gives us a sense of the attitude of Jacob. Jacob strove with the angel. Now that word angel in that text, I believe, is a reference to the angel of the Lord, uh, which is also another way of talking about God in the Old Testament. And prevailed. And he wept. And he sought his favor. That sounds like the man who's come to the end of himself. I know who you are. I know I will not let you go unless you bless me. You have crippled me, lamed me, taken away my strength. From now on, I have no choice but to depend on you, God. You've left me with no other route to take. But please, let me limp away from this experience with your blessing, God. See, friends, this is what we call a redirection of energy. Jacob learns this key paradox to the Christian life that we all must learn. We cannot wrestle God, but we can cling to God. We cannot steal his blessings away, but we can receive what he gladly gives. We think that gaining our life is most important, but it turns out that when you seek to gain your life, you lose it. But when you come before God and say, God, I'm willing to lose my life to you, you find out that you gain it. That's the paradox, friends. As the story moves forward, God asks Jacob, what is your name? What is your name? He's not asking for a piece of information that he doesn't know. He's asking Jacob for a confession. By asking for his name, God is saying, I want you to be honest with me. Tell me who you are. 
Tell me where you've been and, and what you've done and, and all the wake of relational mess that you've created while you've been wrestling with me through this life. I imagine that Jacob, when he heard God say this, just hung his head and said, I am Jacob. I'm a schemer. I'm a manipulator. I willingly tripped up my brother and my father and my uncle. I can still hear the words coming from my brother's mouth. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? I am Jacob. I'm willing to be personally expedient. I do what it takes to get ahead. I create relational wakes wherever I go. That's what I am, God. That's who I am. What about you? What is your name? You see, the wrestling match won't end until you are willing to say it. I am a deceiver. I am selfish. I am self-important. When we own the name, then we can bring it to God and he can handle it. You see, God's not the type of God that when you come to him and you speak your name to him that he puts it all over social media so that it goes viral and that you are ashamed of yourself. No, God has much better intentions for you when you come to him and bow the knee with your name. The text continues in verse 28. Then he said to Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. When Jacob surrenders his old name to God, God meets him with a new name, Israel. Israel means he struggles with God. He has struggled with God and he has prevailed, but he found that when he struggled with God, it wasn't by overcoming God. It was by laying down and letting God take over the situation. You see, that's what happened in Jacob's life. Now, we look at a big lesson here in the last couple of verses. It says this in verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name, but he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And um, there he blessed him. Now, the reason that God does not give his name is to give Jacob his name would be essentially saying that we're equals on the same footing, and God is not going to give his name in that sort of way. They are not equals. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered the sun rose uh, upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his, uh, his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So the morning sun reveals this stooped, bleeding, bruised man in tattered clothes, covered in dust, and he's dragging behind him this limp leg. Each step work, uh, each step painful, but he's smiling as he walks away. He's wrestled with God. God crippled him. He lost the match. He surrendered, and in the end, he found that he actually won. You see, friends, I don't think that Jacob would have traded this new realization of God for a better limb. 
I think that the injury that he sustained was worth realizing how you actually get God's blessing in life. I think he learned a big lesson. Broken is better if it teaches us to walk more closely with God. Why? Because self-sufficient is insufficient. Why? Because God is all-sufficient. And many of us will have to go through this life and sustain a series of injuries, grace injuries, before we learn this lesson. Uh, This past week, I read a reflection from Joni Erickson Tata titled, uh, Reflections on the 50th Anniversary of My Driving Accident. Uh, If you don't know Joni Erickson Tata's story, she sustained a lifelong injury at the age of 17, diving into a pool. Uh, She broke her spinal column, and uh, essentially has lived life as a paraplegic in a wheelchair. Initially, when she went through this injury, that wheelchair felt like an imprisonment to her. Uh, She says this, I hated the paralysis so much that I would drive that power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I just wanted to die. Yet God continued to have a wrestling match with Joni for Joni. It was early in the 1970s that Joni decided that she was going to surrender her life to Jesus' lordship. She would learn how to do that even as a paraplegic in a wheelchair. And what God did is he brought some strong Christian friends into her life. If, if you ever have the question, well, do I need Christian community? Do I need to be around Christians? I want you to hear her words. Maybe they will convince you. They hooked up their spiritual veins to mine, pumping compassion into my wounded soul. Come means with. Passion means Christ's suffering. They literally were Christ with me in suffering. I wasn't their spiritual project, I was their friend. And as she decided to surrender her life, everything started changing. She writes this, what a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, deep study of God's word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of my hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. And in Joni's life, God put her on a bigger platform after going through this injury than she had received before. She started a ministry in 1979 called Joni and Friends, which their purpose was to reach families with special needs, people for Christ. And she would go around the country, would speak for them, advocate for them, tell churches how to be more embracing and loving towards people of this, uh, with these struggles. <coughs> Joni has been all over the world, and her ministry has been all over the world. She sends Christian physical therapists, and they go into over 40 countries around the world, giving people Bibles. Uh, they give them the gospel, And they also make hand-fitted wheelchairs for those who are under-resourced. I mean, what a powerful story when you think about it. 
And it tells us a very powerful truth that God doesn't need you to steer your life. God doesn't even need you to be whole. He simply needs us to surrender our will to his, and that's when we start doing the real work. You ask yourself, well, how does that work? And I've only got one word for you. Grace. Joni writes of God's grace, it has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in the tiny moments, like breathing in and out, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. And what you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. That's what Jacob learned when he gained his limp. That's what Joni learned when she gained her wheelchair. That's what we will learn if we stop wrestling with God and start clinging to God. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?